All right, you guys, you want to start it up? Settle down, be happy. Before we get started, my friend Lily, oh, I should have had a mic. Um, you're loud, just be noisy. So Lily's going to be loud, but you have to be quiet, so shh. I'll stand here near you. So two weeks from now, during this time period, we are going to have four families represented who are going to be able to speak to what does it look like to be disciples making disciples in the home. Um, me and my husband, we've got, well, okay, between the four families, we've got the Thompsons, the Childresses, Miss Erin Love, and our family, and between us, we've got newborn stage up through starting to enter college and i know personally oh, this isn't doing these, anything okay carry on <laughs> that these families uh they they very intentionally put jesus at the center of their homes i know it's very easy to be discouraged how do you disciple your children what does it mean to put jesus at the center of your life how do you create a rhythm where where your children can see you loving jesus and in turn, love him too. And so we just want to be up here. We'll kind of give you a view in what does it look like to follow Jesus in your daily life and at other times. And we'll also answer questions and have opportunities to share testimonies about God and work powerfully in our families. You will be encouraged. It's going to be really sweet. I hope you guys can make it. And please invite other people too. I think this is going to be a really, really good time. Indeed. Lily, thanks for doing it. So two weeks from now, Sunday school class will be... Uh, you know, these four families talking about how they disciple their kids. hope you guys will come and be part of that. Um, so we're going to start a new series here today that's going to stretch on for months and months. So you guys probably could guess, who do you think is mentioned, what human being is mentioned in the Bible more than any other? Can you guess? It's kind of the, it's kind of the obvious answer. It's Jesus, okay? Jesus, is, Jesus gets top billing, okay? <laughs> Jesus is always the answer, but so setting Jesus aside because it's his book, who's number two? Who is the second most frequently mentioned human being in the Bible? Moses. What we got? We got, we got an Abraham, we got a Moses, Paul, Abraham, Moses, Paul, what? David. David. Okay, what's the right answer? What do you think? I'll give you, here, here's the top, the top five are, are, are Moses, Abraham, David. Uh, you missed Jacob and Judah. Who's number one? <coughs> Moses. Moses. Moses? Nope. Moses. Well, so number one is Jesus, but behind them, it's uh, it's David. Moses is behind David. David. David gets almost a thousand mentions by name in the Bible. Jesus is about twelve hundred, and David gets a thousand. David shows up over and over and over. We have. Hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff about David, and we know reams and reams of data about his life. Not just like the things that he does in these narratives. We have between seventy-five and a hundred poems that he wrote. He's the by far the number one contributor to the Psalms, and so that gives us insight into him. Um, he is absolutely huge. He's a massive player. And so a couple of weeks ago, Kelly and I were talking. I just saw you, sweetie. Where'd you go? There you are. Hi, Kelly. You're way over there. Um, Kelly and I were talking about what do we need to do in this class? We kind of finished up this kind of basics that we were did, doing through the summer, preparing for our confirmation time that's coming up. And we were talking about what we ought to do. And she's like, you should do this thing on this life of David. 
And I'm like, okay, why should I do a thing on the life of David? And we began to talk about it, and I, she persuaded me that was a good answer. And so we are going to begin a survey of David's life. Um, when we do that, what I'll be doing is a primary basis. Well, where would I go? Where would you go? If you had to teach on the life of David, where would you go? What is it? First Samuel. We start in First Samuel, and then we work your way all the way through Second Samuel. Do you know where David dies? If we were following, them. remember our great big chronology of the, of the Old Testament. Where does where does David die? Anybody know? First Kings. It is First Kings, very 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 beginning. First Kings is really about Solomon, but the first two chapters are David handing the kingdom over to Solomon. So we're going to go from essentially from First Samuel about chapter sixteen was where you'd probably start with with David all the way through all of First Samuel, all of Second Samuel, and then just kind of kiss into Kings. Where else would you go to get information about the life of David? Psalms for sure, right? You're going to get lots of information about him in the Psalms. You kind of see this inside of his heart. Where else would you go? If you're building your case, if you're doing a research paper on David. Anywhere else? We've got Psalms. Yeah, Samuel, Samuel, a little bit of Kings, Psalms. What book replays 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel? Chronicles, right? Yeah, so we kind of look at the first Chronicles in particular. But in, this, in addition to all those things, you're going to go through, you get all of the data here in... First and Second Samuel, which is the bulk of his life. If you get all the songs, all the stuff, if you go outside of all that, his name is still mentioned another 80 times in the Bible. David shows up over and over and over again. The fundamental storyline is First and Second Samuel, but it's all over the place. And I hope that you might consider this. We're going to be doing this for a while because there's so much information about David. But I hope you might consider as a, as a kind of a baseline that you might decide that every day, spend 15 minutes reading your Bible, just as a habit. You just like every day, I'm going to read two, three, or four chapters, and maybe you'll, you'll join us and read through all of First and Second Samuel. If you just want to jump right up to the point where David shows up, basically chapter 16. If you want to go a little bit earlier, you can read a little bit of Ruth. He shows up there, right? But First and Second Samuel, at a simple level, if you'll just read First and Second Samuel, you'll kind of get the data line. And we're gonna, we're gonna, it's going to take a while. There's a lot of information about David. And today, we're going to begin with a quick overview here that you're going to help me build. So, I've got a few questions for you. And we're going to see what our, what our basic knowledge of David is. You ready? What do we know? What do you know about David's family? What do you know about David's family of origin? Where, do you, where did you go to find that information out? What do we got? Jesse. His father is Jesse. Okay, Stuart, how do you know that? Because it says so in the Bible. Okay, where does it say so? How do you know? Where does it say? What's that? Samuel, it's probably, you're going to get that out of Samuel, right? So in, in, uh, basically in 1 Samuel 16, you're going to see this whole Jesse. What? Okay, you, gotta look, you can look at your genealogies. That's good. That's not bad. Yeah, John? Uh, we also know his grandmother That's right, his grandmother. Okay, so let's talk about that. So the, the early, where does, where's the first time David shows up in the Bible? Ruth. Very first mention. Very good. It's Ruth. Why, why does he show up in Ruth? Oh, Excellent. Obed was the and then Jesse was the father of David. So if you guys know the story, the, Ruth is this, it's, it's a little bit of a peculiar story. This woman who uh, is not Jewish, but she links her life into a Jewish community and says, your God will be my God, right? Wherever you go, I'm going to go. And it's a little bit of this odd thing. When you get to the finally, it's almost this like dramatic reveal. It's a little bit like a, uh, what is the, uh, who's the guy that used to do the radio program with like, Paul? 
Yeah, that's it. But yeah, though, what's the rest of the story, you know? And he'll tell you this, he'll tell you a whole story, and then at the very end, there's the reveal of who we were talking about all along. That's basically the way that the story of Ruth works out. You're following this woman, this Moabitess woman, and she's kind of like, "Who are you? Like, what are you? Why are we giving you a whole book?" And by the thing that when the whole thing is done, she has a baby. And the baby's name is Obed. And then Obed has a baby, and his name is Jesse. And then Jesse has, well, these men are not actually giving birth, okay? But, <laughs> and Jesse has a child named David, at which point you're like, oh, okay, I get it. This whole thing is a big setup for the revelation of, this, of David, who is going to be a massive, massive player in the game. Okay, John? You also have had the great Yes, yes. So Rahab the prostitute is also part of this whole story. There's lots of sketchy characters in the Bible that are more significant than the ones that we might think of as clean and pure, right? It's a really very interesting. And of course, that's going to end up being Jesus' genealogy as well, okay? So we know that he is of this tribe, right? He's he's from Ruth. He's a descendant of Ruth, also of Obed of Jesse, David. We get all that from Ruth. You can see it played out in 1 Samuel, in particular chapter 16, um, what tribe is he from? Yeah. And why do you know that so quickly? Because he is the line of Judah. He has to be, right? And it, why, why is it significant that he is from Judah? Why, of all the strange things that you would know about the Bible, why, Ju, why is Judah so on the tip of your tongue? It's where Jesus' line, the Messiah. Yes, the Messiah. It's, it's a very clear prediction in Genesis, in Genesis 49 that the Lion of Judah, that it is from this particular 12th of Israel, there's 12 different kids, and this is the one from whom the Messiah is going to come. And if you understand that David is the forerunner for the Messiah, that the Messiah, when he comes, is called a son of Jesse, a son of David, then he had better be of the tribe of Judah, and in fact he is. Okay? So we know that he's from Judah, he's from Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and then comes David. Yeah, John? Another, and coming from Judah, you've got another Oh yeah, there's so many shady things in this whole story. If we if we we could do a series on shady things in the Bible, and there's a lot there's a lot to draw from. No no question. Okay, so we go. We know a little bit about his family. What do you know about David's rise to power? How is it that David becomes king? Robin, what do you know about that? Yes. He lined up all the sons of Jesse and went down and God said, that's not the one all the way down the road. And he said, is there another son? And the David was out in the fields so when she was the youngest. That's right. Back in, and Jesse anointed him king. And then at that point, he came, went to Saul. No, what's his name? Yes. The king Saul's um, court as, um, I don't know what he started out as, a park player? Yeah, that's right. Okay, excellent. So let me recap that. So, so Samuel is this prophet who's kind of the de facto leader of the nation of Israel at the time. So there was no king. There was no anything. There's no kind of you know, civil structure to speak of. But Samuel was this um, follower of God, and he was, the, he was the leader of the people. And God tells Samuel, I want you to go find Jesse because one of his kids, we're going we're gonna to pull him and make him be king. And so he gets the kids. Except he doesn't get all the kids. He's got seven kids, and he just grabs six of them because the runt, whatever's going on with it, it's not going to be the runt. And so the runt's off doing his thing, and he goes down, and Samuel's like, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. There's got to be one more. 
And indeed there was. And so David is anointed as king. Now, how, do you guys remember how old David was when this is going down? He's young. He's probably, we don't know exactly, there's no age mentioned in the Bible, but he's pre-adolescent or early adolescent. He's probably about, we, 15 is a pretty good guess. He's 15 years old. He's just the kid out in the field. And Samuel says, you're the guy. You're going to be king. How much time passes before that comes to pass? Do you guys know? How old, if, if David's 15 when he's anointed, how old is he when he's actually, what do you call it, enthroned or inaugurated as, as king? 25 years. It's, a long, it's about 15 years. He's 30 years old. That, we do have that day. The Bible actually makes that explicit. That David was 30 years old when he became king. Kelly Sue? Saul was king when Samuel was, right? Yes, okay, so... Okay, so, and Kelly said, where, where does Saul, so where does Saul fit into this story? He is the first king, right? So wait, so am I wrong? Did I, did I, get, did I get that wrong? Was he at, he, had Saul already been instituted when that whole thing started? Oh, I thought, he, I thought that was right after that, so I got that wrong? Okay, so Saul was already king. Okay, good. So he, and he's going to remain king. My point here is this, this period of time from the anointing to when he become, when he, till he's enthroned is 15 years. And Saul had already been picked up before. Oh, yeah, because it was, because that's right, because Saul just got busted. That's right. Saul had just, got, just gotten in trouble. Okay, so sorry for screwing that up. So Saul had been installed as king. He was really tall. Everybody thought he was great, and he wasn't. He was bad. He was hiding among the baggage. But once he blows it, we're not gonna get, it's not going to be a Saul story, but once he blows it, God calls this new guy to play, into this place. But it's 15 years. That's like, that's a long, that's like, that's like four American elections, right? That's like a long time before David is going to finally become king. And what is his life like in that interval? What, what, what's it like to be David? What happens between anointing and the arising to king? Killing giants and playing the harp. King, <laughs> killing giants, playing the harp, and what else? And running for your life. That's a pretty good summary. What's that, Brad? Dodging spears. Dodging spears. Yeah, very good. And Robin, were you going to add anything to that? Robin's not talking to her husband. Okay. So, by the way, the Walkers are in town. I don't know if you're seeing this. Sam Walker and Allison and Henry. And I don't know where Allison went out. But these were dear friends of ours. Used to go to church here. They moved away. They're doctors and nurses somewhere else in the world. And uh, we're glad to have you guys. So, thanks for being here. Okay. Okay, Kelly, go, go louder, babe. Excellent. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of things going on for these 15 years. Judy? The other thing is he showed his character over and over. I mean, he was a, even in the positions he was in, he even ran for his life. He refused to yeah. kill Saul, even though he had many other. Yes. Uh, a hard man, but also growing, and he was able to walk the way God wanted him to. Absolutely, and we're gonna, let's, we'll unpack that a little bit here, and then we're going to see it lived out for weeks and weeks and weeks as we go through. So very good. So you see in that 15-year window, you see David's character played out. We'll, talk, we'll add that up. Lily? Um, I was also thinking about like, the ways in which God prepared him for each part of his life. Like he killed a bear and a lion before he ever killed a lion. That's right. Yeah, and he tells that story in 1 Samuel 17. That's exactly right. Catherine? The first thing that popped into my mind when you said, what was his life like? I just saw refining fire. And he trusted God even though his life was so horrible. Yeah. And, and what, what I love about David is that he would just tell God how horrible it was and 
wanted God to do to his enemies. And I mean, wow, what honesty. I love it. And yeah. always said, and I'm terrible. I just, I want to escape. I want to, I'm going to die. Everybody say, but God. He always said, but God. He ended it with praise and he began it sometimes. Yes. And the Psalms are such a strange insight into kind of his own inner life, you know. And as you say, just inc incredibly emotionally honest as he processes through some really, really difficult circumstances. Okay, great. These 15 years. What else is going on there, Sarah Lynn? I think when he is, like, is found, he's like shepherding in a field. And I love that. Like the lineage, like Jesus, David, like the whole like, the shepherd. Yeah, the one that God calls to be the, his king is, on the one hand, you get, he's exalted to the kingship, kingdom, whatever, you know, to rule the kingdom from this lowly place where you're staying up late, you're out all night, you're in the cold, you're in the wet. And God uses this thing where he'll take us from lowly places to exalt us. But also, <laughs> what he learns about shepherding sheep is applicable shepherding people, right? And this is the great, one of the great metaphors. One of the, re we'll, get to, we'll, get, we'll get to this too, but... David is a forerunner of Christ. I, I think you could make the case, maybe you could make the case, maybe I will deny this later, but that he is the greatest forerunner of Christ in the Old Testament. And if so, if Jesus, when he comes, if he is the good shepherd, he, and, and that part I will not deny, Jesus is the good shepherd, David's role as a shepherd is one more facet of his foreshadowing of Christ. So excellent. Okay, good. A couple more things. Yeah, way back. He was in a covenant relationship with Jonathan. Excellent. Okay, so prior to his becoming king, and it persists in his kingship, he is um, he has a best friend named Jonathan, and there's a lot. We'll, we'll watch that relationship unfold, which is a very unusual friendship, because Jonathan is. Well, what should who is Jonathan? And therefore, heir to the throne. He should be king. Your dad's the king. You get to be king. Right? Think like Lion King. You know, like that little lion strutting around. You just can't wait to be king. That should have been Jonathan, but instead he's like, David, it should go to you. Who does that? Right? So that relationship is, there's a lot of stuff that we can see and unpack in there for sure. Kelly? Well, the significance of that too is Jonathan, like, so David arrives in Saul's court as a musician. Yes. Way up to be a commander at Saul's son basically pledges his allegiance to David, which is a huge vote of confidence in his dad. Saul's daughter marries him, so he wins his daughter's hand in marriage. And then all the community, all the citizens' hearts, David wins their hearts, not even trying, when they're like, Saul has slain his thousands and David has tens of thousands. So Saul has good reason to feel threatened and jealous of David, which is when he starts to, you know, the spirit leaves him, he picks up a spear and tries to just kill him. That's absolutely right. And we're going to see all that too. So when David, during these 15 years, or in a portion of these 15 years, David becomes, well, first he's invited into, king, into Saul's court, and he's going to play the harp for him. He's going to calm him down. And, and Saul's got issues, right? Saul just kind of has these, like, you know, deep panic attacks. He's, he has this, like, demonic experience. His spirits are oppressing him. And when David shows up and plays music for him, it calms him down, and things get better. But David is so great at these things that he is doing that he ends up becoming a commander in the military. And the more that David does for the success of the kingdom of Saul the more that Saul comes to hate him. Because there's this song. Remember the refrain that just, Kelly said he may not have heard it. It just galled Saul. There was this song they would say, they would sing that, they, that Saul has slain his thousands. And David is tens of thousands. 
And that didn't, Saul didn't like that part very much because he has this sense that the kingdom is slipping through his fingers and going to David. Everything David did, which benefits Saul, which exalts Saul, which helps Saul, Saul took as a threat, which is why David had to get good at dodging spears. Dodging spears. I mean, literally dodging spears. Saul would just get so ticked, so threatened, he'd just whip a spear at him and then sticks in the wall. And David's like, dude, what, are you, what is your deal? Right? And this thing goes on and on and on as David is trying to, uh, trying to stay alive but refusing to fight back. David is, on the one, it's really odd, David is on the one hand, he is a violent man. He's a man of war. And he's going to kill a lot of people, okay? That's part of the deal. It's why God doesn't want him to build a temple. He's going to have his son do that, right? We'll get to there too in months. But along the way, despite the fact that he is a man of violence, he has this incredibly high view of the Lord's anointing. And if God puts Saul in the throne, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to. Not going to have anything to do with getting him out of it. David could readily have said, "Listen, I've been anointed as king, and so like, let's go, let's do this." Especially if you chuck a spear at him, you'd be able to pull it out of the wall and throw it back. And he's like, "I will not. I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed," which might have interesting implications if you watch his life. Like, what does that mean, right? That he is so patient that he waits. And he trusts that if the Lord anointed me, the Lord will exalt me and I can live in the interval. I can just wait for that. <sighs> That's interesting, right? Bear in mind, as we go through this, you're gonna, we're going to want to watch this. We, we did this all last week. It's going to be very easy to say, oh, I see. David was anointed, but he had to wait till he became king. Therefore, if I have some sense of having been anointed, I need, I need to wait for it. But if you do that, if you just make the assumption that David is you, that your life maps to Jesus, I mean, that, you, that his life maps to you, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to get you wrong. And before you get there, ask the question, what does that look like in Jesus' life? When did Jesus have the opportunity to become king, but he said, I will not touch it until the Lord makes it so, right? We always want to be, be careful. If you study a character in the Bible like David, it's going to be tempting to go home and be like, today's homework lesson is be like David, Okay. It's not, okay? We're gonna, I'm gonna try to suppress that instinct and say, instead ask the question, how is David like Jesus? What is this saying about the work that has been done on your behalf? Okay, so watch for that. Secondarily, eventually, ultimately, yeah, there are things, and because we're li- our lives are supposed to, we're not trying to be like David, we're trying to be like Jesus, right? But if Jesus is like David, there'd be things that we can see through him and we can look to him and be like, oh, what, have there ever been a situation in my life where I was waiting to come into power and they needed to be patient and not kill anybody in the meantime, right? So there'll be application points, but let's never, we never want to skip Jesus on the way to that application, okay? Catherine? Even, even Jesus, um, after he was baptized, he had to go into the wilderness. That's right. And even, and Paul, he, didn't he go, wait, like three years? Was it three? Paul's 14 years. Okay. Yeah, for Paul, yeah, he spent 14 years basically. In the, it's really stunning. You think like, because we, we feel like, let's just do it now. I don't know. Whatever we're doing, I'd like to do it right now. And, um, and that is rarely God's thing. Mo, how long is Moses on ice? before Moses, God says, Moses, you're my guy. How long does he spend? 40 years. 40 years. This is not the wilderness. This is not 40 years roaming around in the wilderness. This is 40 years before the Exodus. He goes out and he hangs out on the, and like, for, like, dude, 40 years. And then it's finally go time and they leave and it's another 40 years, right? So God is very comfortable taking a very long time to accomplish whatever he's doing. Have you noticed this? Can you imagine 
When, when God tells Moses, hey, listen, this is it. We've been in the wilderness. We, people have been in slavery long enough. How long are they in slavery? It's like 400 years. I can't remember. Is, I can't remember if the 40 is in addition to that 400 or if he starts it at 360. But whatever it is, it's been a long, 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 long time. And God's like, yeah, you know what? A few more decades, right? David, you're king in 30 years. Paul, let's go. I am uh, 14 years. Let's wait. That's all these things that God just moves very, very slowly on, which is aggravating as can be. Okay, John. There was, uh, there is one point where uh, David's faith kind of faltered. Oh, more than one. Well, particularly at the end of Second uh, Samuel. Uh, but hang on, but we're not, we're not going to start there yet. Hang on. We're, gonna, we're still in those 15 years. He's going to blow it later, but not yet. This is, this is in that 15. Before he becomes king? At the end of first. Okay, okay, go ahead then. Uh, just not too long before uh, Saul is killed, uh, David makes, uh, finally says, now one of these days I'm going to surely perish in the hand of Saul. Oh, yes. And he flees to the Philistine. That's right. And he almost gets himself in a jam uh, of having to join his Philistine uh, lord fighting against Saul. But uh, God gets him out of it when... Uh, that's right. So, so what's John describing? So in this 15-year window where David is initially, he's working for Saul. He's a commander of the army. And he's doing great things and he's, you know, winning great victories. But Saul has this love-hate relationship with him. And Saul, you could tell Saul's like emotionally torn. Where sometimes he's like, David, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I threw that spear at you. You're the best. You do everything great for me. He's like, great. Awesome. But the next day he throws a spear at him again, right? And, but eventually it gets so bad that Jonathan and he, do you know this great, this is this great pathos sign where John, Jonathan is convinced that everything's going to be well, but he's wrong. And he has this conversation with David. He says, listen, I'm going to like, I'll go talk to my dad and everything's okay, then I'll make sure that everything stay, you can stay. But if not, then you'll have to flee. And, he, and they have this very very pathetic, very lots of pathos, kind of weeping and, and departing as, as basically Jonathan says, get out of here, flee, run away, go far, hide. And David leaves and he's no longer serving, serving the king and he goes off and he hides and he gathers to himself all these mighty men. They live out in this cave of Adullam and he's comforted and getty. There's all these great things going on in David's life, but as he's fleeing for his life and now Saul, there's no more pretense. Saul is just full core press. We're going to find you, we're going to kill you. David does a really good job of not killing Saul over and over and over. He has the opportunity to not just defend himself, but to like jam a spear back into Saul's head. And he never does it. But he falters. John's exactly right. He gets to the point where he's like, he's just, too, he's just tired of this. It's worn him out. And he leaves and he goes and he works among the Philistines, which is the enemies of the enemies. And he has to go, he pretends to be, you know, dribbling and spit running down his beard, pretends to be insane. He has all these different crazy kind of moments in his life as he's, he's, he's employing strategy after strategy. Sometimes in those times, he's incredibly faithful. Sometimes in those strategies, one of his strategies is to lie. He actually lies to the priest of Nob. Do you guys remember this scene? We'll get, we'll get to this in due course. But because David goes in and he takes the bread and he takes the sword, actually, the sword of, of Goliath, a whole slew of people get slaughtered. Not by David, but on behalf of David, because of David, and because of the ways that he's trying to grapple with the difficulty in his life. So David is, Catherine, please bear with me here, okay? I'll get to you. Um, 
He is, uh, David is amazingly faithful, but he's actually a human being. And there's all sorts of times that he's trying different strategies to make it work. Okay? So when we watch David's life, we're going to see point after point after point how his life anticipates Jesus, how he points to Christ. But you wanna, one thing you got to be careful is that David is not the Messiah. Right? When Jesus comes, he's going to be in even more distressing circumstances than David is in, but he's never going to falter. And so we see in David both the framing and the templating for Christ, but we also see in David's life the need for Christ because David can't pull it off. Make sense? All right, Catherine. Um, but one, of the, one of the things in his life that really stands out to me was, you know, God had to train and discipline with that sword thing. You know, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And when he, when he goes to that town and asks for food and they didn't give it to him, so he just got his men who's going to go in there and slaughter them all. And, but that man's wife came out and told him to stop. I think, and then... Abigail, yeah. So, yeah, Abigail. And then later on, her husband dies, and then he marries her. Doesn't he marry her? He marries Abigail, yeah. She's like his fourth or fifth concurrent wife. That's another one of David's problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. David, I mean, and, and the weaknesses you see in David, David is, on the one hand, he's, absol- he's exceptional. He really is. His willingness to suffer, his willingness to be... Patient. In fact, what is, what is David's primary virtue? How is he described? A man after God's own heart. Okay, what does that phrase mean? A man after God's own heart. What does that mean? You ever unpack that? What's that? He cares about the things that God cares about. He cares about the things that God cares about. Excellent. A man after. David is after God's own heart. What does that? Yeah, unpack that. DFP? He cares about knowing what God thinks, yeah, how God's heart works, and then modeling himself after that. He does. He, he's the real deal. He genuinely, actually seeks after God. He really wants to know him. And as, he, as he's pursuing God, he is an, he's all in. As a little kid, he's out in the field and he's writing poems to, you know, to Yahweh. And he, as he lives his life, he's, when he, he's under great threat, he decides he's not going to kill him. Not because he likes Saul, but because the Lord anointed Saul. And if the Lord anointed Saul, well, what am I to do about that? Because it's Yahweh's, right? And so there is this reality to his life that he's pursuing God all out. And yet, and yet, what would you say are David's two chief shortcomings? What are the, what are his, what are the sins that keep tripping him up? Women. Women, okay. And women aren't sin. Let's clarify that, okay? It's just you, it's lust, not women, okay. And... Guile. Guile? No, violence. Violence? That's what I would say. It's lust and anger, which are kind of like, okay, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. Like, if there are two besetting sins for at least half of the population, what are they? It's lust and anger, okay? So David is, so isn't that interesting? David is a man after God's own heart. He is all in. He loves him. He is the one that God gives the greatest amount of attention to in all of the scriptures. He is the template the template for the Messiah when he comes, and yet the persistent realities in his life that are going to screw him over are lust and anger. He's just, on some level, he's a very normal dude. In fact, he's actually, he's got, he's got a lot of wives, right? He's got a lot going on. And he is, he's a lusty dude in lots of different ways. 
and he kills a ton of people. These things are like, things are in him in great strength. And yet, when he's at his best and he can subdue his, his worst parts of his nature and yield his life to Jesus, he accomplishes great things. It's just interesting juxtaposition of these things. Lily? Um, I was thinking that being a man after God's own heart is not only a matter of seeking and pursuit, which you absolutely see played out so well in the songs, but I think the other side of that coin is submission, is utter submission to, the Lord, to God's lordship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so David, for a guy that's got so much, he's a powerful guy. Like he's just not generally, there's a little bit of, there are moments of passivity, but for a guy who's generally active, who doesn't like sitting around, he likes doing stuff, whether that's, you know, taking wives or killing people, he likes doing stuff. He's an active guy. But when he's in his right mind, he takes all of that energy and says, it's yours, Lord. How shall you like me to spend it? Right? And he's, he's submitted. Something else. Kelly? Plus we get to see his repentance. Over and over. We get to see the repentance of a lot of the Old Testament patriarchs or saints, but because he wrote the Psalms and you see his, that's, that turn and that submission, you get to see it. Yeah. Where, where, which Psalm would you say is the, is, the, is the clearest kind of window into his repentant heart, Kelly? Well, 51 is the yeah. most impressive thing, but there's others. Yeah. 32. Yeah. Yep. Samuel came to him and told him the story about the lamb. Yes. Yeah, they just took it. And yes. So. Response when he said that. You are the man. Yeah. So, so this is the thing. If you're, if you're, if you want to just kind of get your head around David, I would say I would agree with Kelly. Psalm 51 is probably your number one psalm. If you want to be like, where does this guy who is so like, such a active, getting you know engaged kind of guy, when do you see the softness? When does he kind of crater? and stop bowing up against everything, Psalm 51 is probably our clearest insight to that. If you want to watch it happening live, uh, after the whole Bathsheba incident, um, Samuel comes to him and tells him a story about a guy who had um, a whole pile of sheep, lots of sheep. He had everything. He was rich. He was wealthy. And across the street there lived a man who had one little ewe lamb that he loved. He slept in his bed. He loved this lamb. And then when this rich guy has some guests over for dinner and he wants to cook a meal, instead of taking one of his hundred sheep, he goes and he takes this pet sheep from across the street and cuts it open and feeds it to his guests. And David says, that guy needs to die. And Samuel says, you are that guy. And David, oh, yeah, it is Nathan. You're right, it's not Samuel. The whole time, that whole thing was Nathan doing that. And, and 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 he craters and he's soft, right? And of course, he was also caught absolutely red-handed. But in that moment, he just, he yields, right? And we see that over and over again with David. Way in the back, Kim Motley. Way in the back. Um, one of the other you said anger and lust are his major downfalls, his sins. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's unpack that. This will be this is a this is a major thing. Most of the time, we talk about David. If we say when did David screw up the worst? What's your answer? Bathsheba, Bathsheba right? Okay. And now, we're, by the way, now we're outside. Somehow we drifted. I've, I'm not being very disciplined. We've left our 15 years. Now he's become king, and he's going to have lots of good years as king. He's going to do a lot of things well, but from the Bathsheba incident on, everything's going to completely unravel. Okay, Bathsheba thing is known. But the thing that really we're like, when things start to get bad, they just get worse and worse and worse. And remember, he is, on the one hand, he is the template of the Messiah. 
But on the other hand, he is not the Messiah. Okay? <laughs> right. Well, and there are, yes, that, that he is very much one of us. Right? There are things about him that are wonderful, but man, he blows it. And so when it really spins out of control, and, and we'll see this hopefully as we go through, he might have been the Messiah. Now, he's not. He never was. Okay? But from the people's vantage point, this might be the guy. We've been waiting for the one. Has he come? Has he come? And then David's job in the narrative is to give us hope that God is fulfilling his purposes and the Messiah has come. And then we realize, oh, gosh, that did not go the way. That, does, that story does not end the way we thought it would end. His story begins gloriously. Starts, he kind of, when he steps on the stage, it's David and Goliath. It's this amazing picture. But by the end, it's a wreck. He dies with some, like, 25-year-old in his bed. Do you know this whole story? Like, at the very end of his life, like, David's cold. And the only way they can keep him warm is to find some really, really hot chick and have her hang out in his bed. I mean, like, her primary quality is that she is beautiful and she is warm, okay? And, and so you got this old guy with this, like, what's her name? I forget her name. She's a Shunammite. What is it? Abishag. That's right. That is right. And so, so it, the story starts amazing. And then by the end, you're like, all right, David, things has just gone poorly. But there, that last half that Kimmer's referring to, he has a son named Amnon and a daughter named Tamar and another son named Absalom. Do you remember how these three, Amnon, Amnon and Absalom and Tamar, how does that, anybody want to re recount that story? How does it play out? Stuart, you mind doing it? Amnon falls in love with Tamar. Yes. Kind of like violates her. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, then they, and then he rejects her, and then now they want to kill him, Absalom. So Absalom is Tamar's full brother, and Amnon is, his, is the, is the half-sister, or you know, Tamar is the half-sister. And so Amnon falls in love with Tamar, then he rapes her, and then he hates her as much as he ever liked her. Yeah, and then Absalom goes after him, and then ultimately goes after David. Right, but, but, but in between there, before that happens, what does David not do? He doesn't. Anything, right? <laughs> he just, he's super negligent. And this is what Kim, I think, is pointing to. Like, like when Amnon rapes Tamar, David's kind of like, ah, you know, don't take it to heart. You know, it's like, whoa, what? Right? And then, so when they, and then the brothers get in a fight, and everything just goes crazy. And when when Absalom ends up killing Amnon because David didn't do anything. And then Joab, who was David's commander, kills Absalom because he's trying to take away the kingdom. And David's weeping. It is just, an, the whole thing, as you're reading through it, you're going to be like, wait, is this the same guy? Is this at all? I mean, everything that David does from that point on is the wrong thing to do. And it's, it's, a, it's, kinda, it's a little bit confusing because we have a tendency to read stories through the lens of there's the white hats and the black hats. And David's been wearing a white hat for a long, long time. And now you're like, wait, wait, is he good or is he bad? What is Joab good or bad? Is Absalom, what should Amnon do? What is what? Is what? And, it, and it's meant to feel chaotic. It's meant to feel like, here's the scary thing, you guys. It's meant to feel like the book of Judges. The book of Judges is the setup for David's kingdom. Do you know this? In, in the book of Judges, everything is this chaotic mess and everything's horrible. And the refrain is, in those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did as he saw fit. And the purpose of that is to prepare to say, and we need a king. And here's the king, and the king is David, and everything's better. But by the end of David's kingdom, David did as he saw fit. And we're like, oh my gosh, we're back where we started. Except now we have a king, but it's a crummy king. And it's supposed to break your heart. 
Okay, when we get to this part of the story, it's gonna it's gonna begin amazing. By the end, you're like, well, what? What hope is there? We need somebody else. We need a better king. And that's really what the story arc that we're going to... It's going to take us months, but that's where we're going to head for it, okay? All right, John. (coughs) Wait, go louder. I can barely hear you. When uh, people originally requested they came from Samuel, uh, it says that the Lord was displeased and told Samuel, you're not rejecting you, you're rejecting me. So when he speaks to him... Speaking for the Lord, he says, "This is this is how the king is going to abuse." And he goes off. That's right. A bunch of uh, abusive practices the king did, and all the people still say that still That's right. That's absolutely right. And so there's this there's an interesting. Well, we'll probably unpack that. On the one way that you can understand the entire Old Testament is that it is the search for a king. The people want a king, and God's initial response to that is no you don't I'm your king I'm the king that you need and then he's like all right fine I'll give you a king we'll see how it plays out and it doesn't play out really well until both of these things become true number one we do need a king and we're glad to have one but it's going to have to be him and that so Jesus is going to we're kind of getting to the head of the end of the story but this this there's this tension between God saying I'm not going to give you a king you don't want a king a king will be bad for you and the, and the world's saying, but we need a king. And those things only kind of meet when you've got someone so righteous and so wise and so good that he's actually competent to be the leader of the people. And it ain't David, and it ain't Solomon, it wasn't Saul, and it's none of the other 40 guys that are going to come. Okay, So this, the whole story is to, is to show us, to prepare us, that we need a king, but he's going to have to be one of us but ragingly unlike us because none of us are suitable for the task. See where we're going with this? Okay, Michael. Uh, Given that we as Christians see Jesus as the Messiah, how how did you see David? Or did they see David any differently? So um, I don't know the exact answer to that. Certainly Jews are no more monolithic than Christians are, right? So there's a range. You said, what do Christians think about this? Well, I don't know. Which Christian are we talking about? There's a million different views. But... But um, it is not new. It is not a Christian idea that David is an archetype of the Messiah. That's richly attested to in the in the Jewish commentaries from the time. So they would absolutely have seen David. They would have seen David as a as the as the coming of the king, right? As the as the picture of what the Messiah will be. Which is why when Jesus shows up, and before all things are made clear, you'll see people calling him "Son of David," the blind man, "Son of David." Have mercy on me. Why does he call him son of David? Because the Jewish anticipation, that, that was to call him Messiah. The Jewish expectation at the time was that the Messiah will be a son of David, coming in the spirit of David, from the line of David, over David's house to, to reign for his people. Now today, I don't know what they would say today. I'm not current on that, but, but certainly you see a, a very Jewish expectation that David is a messianic figure. No, no question. Okay, we got to stop. It's almost done. Okay, final, just final thought. Why does David get so much press? Why does he get, you know, 900 mentions and hundreds and hundreds of pages? Why? It's, it's entirely because he is the messianic template. 
Okay, whenever you study David, you will, the whole time we're doing this, you got to recognize, it's not just that he was a great king, he was the king that anticipates the greater king. Everything about David, it's all, every, every, all of the Davidic lines are going to point us to Christ. They're going to show us not only what he is, what he will be, but they're also going to show us why we need him, because when we're at our best, we can't be him. Okay, so you've got to understand, when, when we, we're going to do this month-long study of David, and a month-long study of David is a month-long study of Jesus. We're pointing to the Messiah. So, so bear that in mind as we go. And resist the temptation to say, I want to go be like David. Okay? That's not what we're saying. There are things about him that are emulated, but that's not the point of the story. Okay? So if you want to, if you want to jump in, start at 1 Samuel 16 and just chuck all the way through 2 Samuel. Okay? And we'll take it apart as we go. So that's all we got. We'll see you. Yeah.